We're three rounds into Wimbledon 2023. Hello and welcome to the latest ATP podcast with me, Chris Bowers, coming to you from the All England Lawn Tennis Club at the end of a somewhat rainy week, which has seen Andy Murray and his male British compatriots all bow out before the round of 16, Carlos Alcaraz continue his mastery of grass, and Novak Djokovic make light work of his three opponents. There have been plenty of shocks along the way and a number of nice surprises. Later in the show, we'll hear from one of the greatest grass court exponents of the past 30 years, Tim Henman. He'll be talking about pressure, voices in your head, the right entourage and social media. Well worth a listen. But first, to the first three rounds of Wimbledon, and to help me round up events and predict how it'll all play out heading into the second week, I have with me the Australian commentator and occasionally smug cricket fan, Peter Mercato, and the former WTA player, Jill Krabus. Welcome to you both. I guess we start with, well, impressions and perhaps your abiding memory of the first three rounds. Peter? I, I should probably correct you firstly, Chris, and say always smug. Uh, fine, yes. Fan. Okay. Uh, yes, but uh, the abiding memory, uh, it, it falls from the sky and it's quite wet. It has been quite the wet first week here at the Championships and that's been one of the, the key talking points, I guess, because we have had so many rain delays and we've been playing catch-up for a lot of the tournament. I think for some of the bigger names, the fact that they've been able to, to play on the main stadium courts under the roof has meant that they've been able to keep to their schedule. It's been some of the players that play on court two and court three and, and the outside courts that have run into a bit of trouble. So we're still in that process of playing catch-up, but hopefully the weather forecast over the next few days will allow us to, to get back on track. Jill? Well, yeah, I think the massive reshuffling of this schedule, I don't even know how they did it. And so many of the players commenting on, I don't know, I don't think this has happened that often, but having to play their first round on Thursday and having to play day after day after day, I mean, that's been a struggle. And some matches, obviously, not finishing and going the course over two or three days. Um, I also want to just say congratulations to Jeremy Shardy for retiring. I think that's so important to recognize because he had such a long career. It's never an easy decision to come to. I mean, some players easier than others, but I just I think that's huge to recognize because it is it's not easy to step away from the game. So congratulations to him. And he went out on a very prestigious court as well. My abiding memory is, is partly the rain, the amount of matches that were played over two days. I mean, Pass had to go to five sets twice, but they were both over two days. I love Berrettini's comment when he beat Zverev, when he said, uh, yes, I may have played five days in a row, but I spent so much of the past year crying because I couldn't play tennis. I'm not going to complain about playing five days. I think that's wonderful. And the one abiding memory, I suspect, even though it happened uh, just a few hours ago from when we're recording this, was Alejandro Davidovich Fokina's underarm serve at eight all in the final set super tie break. I mean, I've often wondered, surely they should try this, but to try it at eight all? And Runa was so quickly in, and it was what finished the match. And Runa ended up winning that one, having been 6-2 down in the tiebreak and saving two match points of 5-4. Yeah, it was an extraordinary match, that one. And just the, the way that it just turned so quickly that in that tiebreak, because you think Davidovich Vakina is going to run away with this and Runa's time is done, and then it all just shifted again. Novak Djokovic is obviously the centre of attention at the moment. He's had the good fortune of being the prestige name the marquee name because it meant he's been playing on the center court which means he's had the roof and therefore he is probably the most on schedule player although he had to uh, win his uh, third round match in straight sets to avoid having to go to an extra day i mean can anyone stop him well i 
This has been the question since the tournament started or since the draw came out. And obviously, he's the overwhelming favorite. But I, I, when the draw came out, I mean, my immediate thought is, like, this is going to be very interesting on both sides because I just felt like there were so many guys that had the ability and the game to be able to come through. It really comes down obviously to the mentality because Jordan Thompson actually before he played Djokovic he, he right away the first thing he said is I, I there's no point in me walking on the court if I don't think I can believe that I can win because so many so much of the time it comes before the match and I mean Djokovic has that aura about him obviously he has all the numbers behind him I mean it's ridiculous how many records he's setting but you do have to somehow almost trick yourself to believing at this stage that you can do it because I do think there are guys that have the ability to do it I think Alcaraz can do it Berrettini has the game to do it Runa has the game to do it I'm, Sitsipas has the game to do it and these guys have I mean Zverev lost today but these guys have beaten him before and so I think it is one of those things where you just like you have to get that depth to be like I can do this I know we'll talk about Carlos Alcaraz uh, a little bit later in the podcast, but I sort of look sort of ahead. He's done nothing wrong in the first week. It's just typical Djokovic, isn't it? That just, you know, get cruise through the first, not cruise, but winning straight sets, not be pushed too far, had a good match with Jordan Thompson, who had to adopt a different set of tactics in terms of coming forward more than he would probably in his career. But though I'm looking just to, to Sasha Bublik, he could be the, the wild card in that pack that the way he's playing at the moment, the focus that he's showing, if he can get past Rublev and we've got Bublik Djokovic, that could be the tricky one for Djokovic. Yes, you can hear the announcement about the end of the uh, the day's play. It tells you that we are still at Wimbledon. Yeah, I was going to come to that. I mean, Djokovic's next two rounds could be his toughest of the whole tournament. I mean, Hurkacz will be uh, a difficult one and Hurkacz took a set off him uh, in the middle of the tournament a couple of years ago. And if he plays Bublik in the quarterfinals, I mean, Bublik has to be, get through Rublev first, but I think that's distinctly possible. He loves grass, plays well on it. I was talking to someone this week who really knows their Asian tennis, and they said, watch out for Bublik. You know, last year he got married, he became a father. And I said, what are you saying, that he's become mature? He said, no, he's less immature. And that's a dangerous combination because he still has that sort of devil-may-care attitude, but with a bit more discipline. Yeah, but I watched him in Halle, and obviously he's playing at the time of recording. He hasn't played his match with uh, Andre Rublev, and that's going to be an interesting encounter. It's a replay of the final from there. But the thing that stood out to me was the fact that he had focus. And when he's dialed in, switched on, not doing any of the other stuff where his mind just drifts and all like even things like underarm serves you don't see anything like that he's got this steely resolve and that's the thing that's going to take him that far and we remember in that uh, the trophy ceremony in Halle where Rublev said you 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 play like this you have that temperament you're going to go places you we've got to realize that potential he could do it in this fortnight he could he could uh, beat Rublev and then have a major um, assault on the otherwise impregnable fortress that is Novak Djokovic. Let's move on to Alcaraz. Um, I tipped at the start of the tournament that they would meet in the final, Djokovic and Alcaraz. Alcaraz has moved through fairly comfortably, very slowly. Do you, think, do you feel, Jill, that he's still learning about playing on grass? I think so, and he mentioned that at Queen's, too, when he won the title, is how much he learned from that particular week because he hadn't had a lot of grass court play. But I feel like that's just Alcaraz's mentality. I mean, all he is, he just he's like a sponge. He just wants to learn and keep growing and growing. And I, I, I said this this morning, too, when they had the morning show on, on Wimbledon Radio Channel. It was like, 
I just feel like he's willing to experiment in matches. And so often you, you see players, okay, if they need to work on something, they go on the practice court for hours and work on something, and then they incorporate it in a match. But I feel like he's willing to do that and try different shots and see what works for him in the middle of a match, which is absolutely exceptional. I thought it was going to be a tough test against Jerry today. It was. Jerry's been playing so good, and I feel like they're both – Maybe more clay court players, but I can see both of those guys transitioning to grass very well because Jerry with the big serve, big forehand. And Alcaraz was tested. I feel like he fought so hard at the end. He was in trouble in the fourth set, able to turn it around. But I felt like that was a good test. And it's going to be a good test against Berrettini next round too. It's one of those interesting things though because he's the top seed. And as you said just before, Chris, the fact that you've predicted that he will reach the final. I wonder whether... This whole idea of, you know, experimenting on grass and getting a feel for the service and not being quite 100% is taking pressure off him. Because notionally, it's really weird that he's top seed and yet, you know, Djokovic is the favourite and he's sort of talking himself down. It's reminded me of Rafa from 2006. Yeah, that it's just, that sort of, I'm going to work my way into it. But you look at the form coming in and he's getting the wins. Okay, yep, he's got Muller and then and Jarry. Jarry was a tough test today and he got through that with no problem, with, well, minimal problems. Berrettini up next, it does get more and more difficult, but I think there's a sense of pressure being taken off him. Did you see Jarry walk onto court and go the wrong yeah. way? That was another lovely little moment. That will, It's an odd moment. That he, he walks out and heads straight to the side of the court where there's no umpire's chair. Um, let's have a look at uh, one or two other players. I mean, the number three seed, Daniel Medvedev, he's looking very comfortable, and I was interested in his interviews. He's sounding very, very relaxed. And Yannick Sinner is doing well. Oh, well, I'll go first on Medvedev. Again, just trolling all of us in the tennis world, isn't he? Oh, no, I can't find my feet. on And he's made it through to the fourth round. I mean, come on, Daniel. Because he also had to play along the way Adrian Manorino, who'd beaten him a few weeks prior to that. Medvedev, Medvedev Lehechka is going to be an interesting match. There's interesting matches all over the place. I mean, it's just a given. But the way he's That's why playing, I thought it was going to be interesting from the beginning. There were so many guys that could do yeah. so, go so deep. But Medvedev, for me, that's that's because you've got that section of the draw where there's Eubanks and Tsitsipas. And you move through that particular side semi-final against Alcaraz. I don't think it's out of the question. I like that matchup to Medvedev Lehechka next because you have the consistency of Medvedev against the huge power hitting of Lehechka. So I think that's going to be interesting to see how Lehechka handles that. He's going deep into the fourth round right now. And so that's an interesting match. But I don't know. There's so there's so much to be excited about. And for Sinner, the Karotas were here. Now they're not here. I hope they come back because uh, they've provided a little bit of fun around the grounds here. His drawer has opened up completely, and it's been that next step. The question mark for Sinner is at majors, taking that next step to really push forward deep into the second week. So that, he's got Safulin, Shapovalov in his particular section. He plays Galan next. He should win that match and you know, reach the quarterfinal. It's that next step, I think, is the big thing for him. When I look at the names still in, I mean, I have to say Runa and Lehechka, I'm slightly worried because they've had big five setters. Lehechka went over four hours. Runa, his his final set tiebreak uh, reminded me of his match in Roland Garros against Sarundalo. He came through it and he's winning these matches but he was short of gas in the next round. Okay, that was against Kasparud and Kasparud on clay is uh, a serious proposition but 
I just wonder whether they've used up too much energy. I'm not sure about Tsitsipas, but you see, for me, Medvedev is fresh, Berrettini is fresh. And the other person that I think we need to look out for is Shapovalov, because he's won three matches. OK, he's had a moderately favourable draw, but he's been a semi-finalist here. He's, he's comfortable on this surface, and I could see a quarter-final between Sinner and Shapovalov. I think we're starting to see a lot more players get comfortable on this surface. The grass, as we know, has changed a little bit. So it has playing more like a hard court as far as the bounce. Having said that, you still have to make some adjustments. Yes, Shapovalov is a huge threat here. He's done well here in the past. I think when he got to the semifinals, it was maybe difficult for him to back that up because I remember he was so emotional after that semifinal because he had put so much effort into it, so much mental toughness into reaching that stage and I think it took him by surprise how effortful that was and I think going into slams after that I think it, it took him by surprise how much he reminded himself how, how much effort it took and so I think he's back at the stage now where he's ready to go he's looking very good he beat Brody in the last round so now he's playing Safuthan. I think that's a, a great match up for him I think he can get through that so yeah I think he's a threat but I think a lot of these guys are threats Sitsipas I mean a lot of the um, gossip columnists have been focusing on his relationship with Paolo Badoso they were entered into the mixed doubles but I think because Sitsipas is in all three events uh, men's singles men's doubles with his brother Petros and mixed doubles with his girlfriend uh, Paolo Badosa, I think they decided that was just too much and uh, I just wonder whether having a girlfriend is just taking some of the pressure off Sitsipas because in the last couple of years he's he struck me as being a little bit uh, not free. Mm-hmm. It's a, yeah, it's an interesting perspective. I think you know coming in here, the the form coming in wasn't the greatest. He was scrambling around to try and just play some matches just to get the grass under his feet, if you like. But since he's been here, obviously that Dominic team match was a huge one. And then obviously Andy Murray back to back has shown the quality from Stefanos Tsitsipas. Now, whether it's, you know, because of Paola Badosa or whatever it might be, um, it's certainly feeling like he's a lot more relaxed out there on court. If we remember to 12 months ago, when we were sitting around doing this podcast after he just played Nick Kyrgios, and Nick Kyrgios put him through the ringer, really, and, you know, all the stories that have come since then, um, it's a different different Stefanos Tsitsipas, I think, this time around. So, you know, he comes up against Chris Eubanks. I give Chris Eubanks a good shot of beating Stefanos Tsitsipas in the fourth round because I've been big on He won the tournament in Mallorca and he's just riding this wave. His first time to the championships in the main draw, he's got the game to, to trouble Tsitsipas. It's whether he can just maintain it across but potentially five sets. And he's got nothing to lose. I mean, I think, I mean, Eubanks is just playing so freely right now. And Tsitsipas, I mean, huge credit to him. I always wondered why he didn't feel that comfortable on grass because I think he has a great game for grass. But I think the fact that he beat Murray, who we all considered was one of the most experienced on the grass with Djokovic here at this championships. I mean, that's got to give him a lot of confidence. Um, Whether Bedosa had a a part in that, I don't know. But I do know it's always nice having someone that's going through the same situation as you to be able to open up and talk to and voice things. So maybe that was a factor. I don't know. But I just think he he looks very good and, and great win that he was able to back it up because that's an emotional win against Murray, I think, in my point, and to be able to back that up against Jerry today. But Eubanks, I mean, he's going to be coming out firing. So I don't know. That's, that's, we'll, we'll see how Eubanks handles the moment, I think. 
I love Chris Eubanks as a player. I was introduced to him last year at the US Open, and he's an absolutely charming man. Yeah. I know the word charming is overused, um, but he's genuine. He actually listens. He, he's involved in conversation. He's, his interviews on court have been terrific. He's a beautiful player to watch, the fluent strokes that um, I'm, I'm delighted to see him make the breakthrough. But we talked about Tsitsipas, who beat Murray. Uh, Eubanks beat Nori. Shapovalov uh, beat Liam Brody. It's not been a good tournament for the home nation um, I don't think that matters unduly we saw the French struggle at Roland Garros but is this Murray's last Wimbledon have we seen the last of him he wasn't sure himself but he did his usual thing when he loses of going straight into his press conference and therefore he, he's talking without letting the emotions settle and I never feel that's quite the best thing yeah exactly and the, the fact that he's sort of hinting towards I mean obviously we know he's coming towards the end he knows that as well it's whether he's got the drive to, to keep going and even if it's just he sets himself for one more championships and he puts all his effort and training into that the ranking won't matter so much because he can always get a wild card the organizers of course will give him a wild card into here it's whether he wants to go through that because if he's going to do it he's going to do it properly he's not going to do a job of just turning up here and just swinging the racket around for a little while he's going to actually want to give his absolute all play a modified schedule I mean it's not out of the question to do that and I think you know for all that he's given to tennis that's that's his decision to make I just hope that it's a a decision so we the fans not just obviously here the local fans but around the world get an opportunity to say goodbye because he's done a wonderful job not only for tennis in this country but around the world so I hope he gives himself that opportunity I do too yeah I just it was the first time I've ever heard him say about maybe not having the motivation he used to have. So that was kind of sad for me to hear. Now, it's going to happen eventually. I mean, his career will come to an end at some point. But it's the very first time I've heard him speak that way. So it was just a bit strange to hear it from him. And because he's always so motivated and eager to keep going. And even winning those challengers leading up to this event, I was like, God, that's such an amazing effort to go back and play the smaller events to get ready for Wimbledon. I mean, that just showed how much passion he has. So it it took me by surprise after that loss because he's had to overcome other losses that he wasn't happy about in the past. But to hear that, I was like, no, no, no. You can, don't end there. You can do, you could do one more. So I do hope to see him back at least one more time. Yes, he's got four kids, but um, he wasn't ranked high enough to be seeded. And I think if he's seeded, he can then uh, at least avoid another seed until at least the third round. So, first three rounds done. We'd normally say this is the end of week one. In the olden days, when we had a middle Sunday off, it was the end of week one. We start the round of 16 on the middle Sunday. So, what about round of 16, quarterfinals and the rest of the tournament? Peter. Oh, you're asking me for a prediction. I've just what what do you think's gonna stand out? Uh, what I think is gonna happen, I think that in the uh, bottom half of the men's singles draw we'll see Novak Djokovic appearing in a semi final and and a final, probably, I would suggest. Uh, the question mark's gonna be who else is going to be alongside him for that semi final. In the top half, I think it's quite open. I think that's gonna be there's gonna be an element of excitement about that because there's the players in that, they're, they're all different to one another. The variety that they've got, ages are going to be different. I think we could see someone from that top half of the draw that we don't expect come the end of next week making an appearance. I always have, I always battle with my head and heart in these situations, but I did back Alcaraz to win it from the beginning. So I, I would, of course, have him in the semifinals. 
And I think I'm going to have him playing Medvedev if I do my little bracket. And then I'm going to turn the page and I'm going to have Sinner <laughs> in the semis against Rublev. Ooh. So Rublev <laughs> is going to beat Bublik and then Djokovic. I'm going for it, Chris. I like I like sort of being the outsider here. That's fine. That's fine. Um, I believe that either Djokovic, her catch or Djokovic, I think it's going to be Bublik, not Rublev. It's going to be an absolute classic, mm. and it'll be Djokovic having to fight for the first time. But I think he's going to come through that, and I think he might play Shapovalov in the semis. I think he'll beat Shapovalov. Um, but uh, that's that's my view from the bottom half of the draw. Top half of the draw, yeah, my problem is we're probably going to have a quarterfinal of Medvedev against Tsitsipas, and they've played so many times quarter semis, various majors, and they're never that good. <laughs> That's a shame because they're two fascinating players. Um, and I'd probably want them both to win in terms of personalities. So I have a question. So, well, I might change my mind too. So I might go Sinner, <laughs> her catch. I'm, I'm known to change my mind, Chris, as you know. But if, you, if Djokovic, if say her catch beats Djokovic, who would you have in the semis? Uh, if her catch beats Djokovic... And Bublik beats Rublev. I would go for Bublik to beat Hukac. I sort of feel that anyone who beats Djokovic at the moment would have such a high that they would stumble in the next round. (laughs) I don't mean that unkindly, but it's just it so often happens when you have a a giant killing. So there we go. It's going to be a fascinating second week. The rain will probably play a small but decreasing part, given that uh, we've got two courts with a roof. But plenty of names left in to make for some matches that will become memorable over time. You're listening to the ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn and ATPTour.com. For the remainder of this week's podcast, we're going to focus on some fascinating thoughts from one of the great exponents of playing on the surface over the past 30 years, Tim Henman. Jill started by asking Tim about his career highs and lows, and inevitably, the grass courts of Wimbledon were front of mind. It would definitely centre around Wimbledon, um, which were some of my career highlights, but also my biggest disappointments. And so, you know, in the space of a couple of weeks, um, to go from those highs to that low was was interesting but um, you know when I reflect on that whole journey of my mum taking me to Wimbledon when I was six for the first time I saw Bjorn Borg play in 1981 and and that was when I made my one and only career decision so then 15 years later to play on centre court for the first time and to be a British player and have that support um, yeah it was always it was always going to be special so I I would definitely say that um, you know Wimbledon obviously um, is some of the, the best moments of my career. But, you know, then losing in those four semifinals, some of the, the biggest biggest disappointments as well. I mean, I remember watching that all the time because you were highlighted so much during Wimbledon. Mm. I mean, you said a lot there. I, I want to go back to when you first came, when you were young. Did you always, from that moment, just visualize or envision you, yourself mm. playing multiple years? Completely. Uh, and... I was brought up in a family with two older brothers um, and we played sport, you know, from the age of three or four. I was playing football, rugby, cricket, hockey, golf, squash, tennis, whatever it was. And But I knew, you know, tennis was what I loved the most, but it was what I was best at. And so, you know, having started at three and then at six experienced Wimbledon, that was it. You know, I always said, and I still say, you know, I've never had a real job. It's always been my hobby and, and uh, I feel so fortunate 
for that to be the case. Um, so, you know, from six, seven, eight, you know, all the way up, you know, I was obsessed with tennis. I love tennis. And, um, you know, Wimbledon was the dream. So um, to then, you know, to be a professional player is, is uh, you know, a big achievement. And then, you know, to move up the rankings to play at Wimbledon. And yeah, it was it was so special. And, and you know, I felt that relationship I had with the fans and the support and the hill. And, you know, it was it was incredible. That's it how was, it started, right? Henman Hill. It all started yeah, with because, you. <laughs> well, it was, yeah, it was. So in 96 was when the old court number one was knocked down. We actually played the last match on in Davis Cup in September. And then that was demolished and the whole Millennium Building was built um, for the players. But then a new Court 1 was built north of Centre Court, which is the court today. And I was lucky enough to play the first match on that in 97 against Daniel Nesta. And when that court was constructed and you know there was a lot of moving of earth, they sort of piled the, the, the soil... Um, you know what was Orangi Terrace, and and that's when you know this hill was formed, and they put the big screen up, and I was playing, you know, my matches then, and and getting into the second week, and and that was when it became kind of known as as Henman Hill, and and now actually the the name has changed, it's called the Hill um, rather than Orangi Terrace, which was always a bit of a mouthful. So <laughs> yeah, it's um, yeah, it's 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 uh, it's another amazing sort of connection for me with with the championships. It's special, yeah. I, I want to talk a little bit about the highs and lows you were. Mm-hmm talking about because players in general go through that yeah but for you there was so much pressure and expectation Mm. on you did you feel that way you didn't feel that way okay so you didn't feel the pressure at all I loved it interesting yeah so so again I I, I'm always been sort of interested in the psychology of of you know sport and the mind and and yeah so so pressure is all self-inflicted so it's very easy for people to think, and, and again, it was a different world then. We didn't have social media, but the, the written media, the tabloid media, the, you know, the television radio was different then. It was so much bigger in that sphere, but yes, we didn't have social media, and, and social media is obviously a complete minefield now. But um, in 95, I got disqualified at Wimbledon, and I unfortunately accidentally hit a ball girl when we were playing doubles first round and, um, you know, I, I got disqualified. I was the first player in 120 years to be disqualified at the championships. And the next day um, I was sharing a flat with another player and he went out and bought all the newspapers. And I sat there in the morning sort of reading them all. And it was it was horrific. And it was as if I'd murdered someone. I, I felt that bad. And I said to myself there and then, I will never, ever read a newspaper again. How, when, how, when I year was, was that again? 95, so I was 20. Okay. I was 20. And because I, I, look, you know, they've got a job to do. I respect that, but it's their opinion. And I don't necessarily agree with their opinion. And likewise, you know, as a professional tennis player, one of the best tennis players in the world playing at Wimbledon, you know, why would I be influenced by a journalist that's probably never played the game, mm. doesn't really understand the game, has got a job to do, but I'm not going to read it. And so, you know, from that moment on, I never, I never listened really to any of these outside voices. And so I knew the things that I could control were my preparation and my performance. And I loved playing on grass. It was a good surface. It was my style of play was serve and volley. I loved playing with that support. So for me, I, I would have played my whole career on Centre Court at Wimbledon in that atmosphere. So when people talk about pressure That's and awesome. expectation, I understand the question. I know where it's coming from and I know other people have suffered from it because perhaps they are influenced and distracted by it. But for me, 
it was the best. So that's awesome mm. that you had that feeling. But I mean, especially because for us from the outside, that mm. that is what we saw. We saw yeah, yeah, yeah. the articles and we yeah. saw, and, and all I could think of was, how does he handle it so well? But mm. you, so your advice to other players yeah. when you do recognize when the pressure is getting to them, or the so what's the pressure? Well. I mean, do you see it though, right? When you're yeah, watching? Yeah, no, absolutely. You do see it. Yes. But, so what would you, what would your advice so, be? So my advice is, you know, you control the controllables. It's like psychology on the court. You know, the most, the base, most basic form of psychology is stay in the present. All you can worry about is the next point. Play that next point to the best of your ability. But we all know when you just served a horrific double fault, at 15 all and the crowd are moaning and groaning it's very difficult not to think about it and not to reflect on how bad that serve was but it's gone you can't change it so concentrate on the next bit and again that playing at home can be challenging because there are more distractions there are more voices there's more uh, responsibilities there are more commitments but again you've got to control what you can and to me you know, I always used to joke that, you know, when I was getting blamed for the weather, then I knew that the expectation <laughs> was, you know, a little bit high. When it rained at Wimbledon, it was my fault. But so for me, I, I did. I was good at preparing well, going out on the court and giving 100 percent. And I was happy with that. And, and so I totally get it when other players and I see it in other slams for American players in, in, in New York. You know, they struggle with it. And why is that? Because you can almost see the voices in their head, the distractions, that they, they've lost that sort of clarity of thought. And, and, you know, when I look back on getting disqualified, I wouldn't really want to go through it again, but certainly that was an important learning, learning yeah. process for me. Did, did you work with a sports psychologist? I did a little bit when I was about 16 for probably six months, and it was okay. helpful. And then I did right at the end of my career. I worked a little bit with Bob Rotella, who's, you know, a big psychologist in golf mainly. And it was excellent, yeah. and and uh, I really felt like I benefited. How? Um, like, what were the most valuable lessons? Just you I remember again the the way to I had a it was getting very I was getting very ana, over analytical of my ball toss, and and I and I was all again going back to I was almost putting pressure on to get my ball toss in exactly the right place, and sometimes it would be, be a bit far forward, and then I'd serve in the net, and it'd be a bit far back, and where it went long, and I spoke to Bob Rotella about this, and he. He, you know, understood a little bit about tennis and he said, tell me about your game. And I said, you know, I'm a servant volleyer and, you know, I like to get to the net, finish the point of the net when I can. I feel like I'm as, I volley as well as anyone in the world and it's my biggest strength. And, and he said, well, what about, you know, when you smash? And I said, well, you know, I feel like if anyone puts a lob up, 99 times out of 100, I'll hit a winner with my smash because it's, it's that good. And he said, well, where do you hit the smash? And I said, well, you've got to use your feet to get in the right position. You know, normally the players will try and lob you over your backhand side because that's harder to hit. And he said, so, so where do you hit your smash from? And I said, well, you have to react. You have to use your hand skills. So I said, ideally, it's a bit like a serve. But sometimes you hit it here. Sometimes you hit it here. Sometimes you hit it here. And he said but you just hit winners. They said, yeah, I'm, I'm that good. And he said, well, surely, you know, when the ball is in your hand, can't you throw it up roughly in the right place and then use your hand skills to hit a serve? And I was like, yeah, I mean, it's always going to be within a sort of six-inch square. 
So why is it that difficult? And because I was overanalyzing it, suddenly I took the pressure off my ball toss. It's like, well, I've only got to throw it up above my head and my smash is that good. Just think about that with a serve. And all of a sudden, my ball toss was better because I wasn't worried about it. And again, it's just, you know, someone, yeah, but someone giving you a different sort of path to, mm. to think about something. And yeah. so, you know, look, some people, you know, need help in these other er- in these areas more than others. And some people need, you know, more work, physical fitness. Some people need more work on their forehand. You know, it's, it's about understanding you. And I think that's, again, one of our challenges of our sport is that you mature young, you come on the tour if you are, you know, successful. You are the, the chief executive of your little business. You've got to get the right people around you. And, you know, who's the right agent? Who's the right coach? Who's the right physio? And... and it's not always easy easy to get those decisions right at, at such a young age. I mean, you bring up a good point because it's changing so much. There's so many big teams now around mm. the players. Do you feel like overall that's a great thing? Or do you feel like to some extent the player could learn a lot by being on their own? What's your opinion? Yeah, um, abs- it's, it's horses for courses. You know, I couldn't bear to have a big team. You know, I had a, a tennis coach. I worked with three coaches in 16 years. I uh, then had awesome. a, I had a, well, but it's, is it right? It was right for me. It was right for you. Yeah. yeah. So likewise, I had a, a physio who really was working with my fitness trainer at, at, at home so that he could kind of do both. He was my physio and then was also able to take care of my, my physical training and, and injury prevention and recovery on the road. So two people. Yes, then I had, you know, my wife and, and children. and But I think in terms of my tennis two was plenty for me you know there are players that like more and need more that's their prerogative so I I, that wasn't for me I I like to just have that simplicity I don't want to hear too many voices and and that's and I would you know if I was playing today I'd you know I'd have two if I could maybe three but that that would be it yeah and and you brought up another good point with social media because it's something that I feel Mm. like is so can't well, I want your opinion, but something yeah. that can be so distracting. And, and it's not only the teams are on the players, but the social media, the entertainment that's now happening. Yeah. Um, do you feel like the sport in general is in a great place with that extra entertainment? I, I we'll think, I that, think that, yeah. So, look, I think tennis is in a good place. I think we're in a transition period in both the men's and the women's game. Um, you know, we've had this golden era, I think, in, you know, the Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray part. You know, we've had Serena, you know, Venus is not going to play for much more. I wouldn't have thought. And we need this next generation. And the next generation will always be there. It's a tough act to follow. We need those rivalries. And we're beginning to see them. So I I don't have any fears in terms of the game. Um, To go on to social media, I, I understand its value. I'm not on social media. I'm not on anything. It's not for me. I'm not interested in it. But I do understand the value. You know, I understand the value to um, within partnerships, within, um, you know, the companies and promoting brands. So the players, if they sign up for that, they have a responsibility. But there is a way of handling that so you're not distracted. So how does a player become distracted by social media? They become distracted they because read, like, they read it. The they read it. Yeah. So why? So why? I, you know, look. My personality is that, you know, I'm, I'm interested in my family's opinion. I'm interested in my friend's opinion. 
am interested in my team's opinion if it was my coach and trainer beyond that I'm not really that interested in anyone else's opinion so therefore why would I go on social media and read positive or negative people that I don't know and I don't really care about in a in a in a I don't mean a you know I I just I'm not interested in their opinion so but when you understand that there are people who you know scroll through pages and pages and read it I mean it must be horrific I mean what do you tell your kids you have three daughters right what do you tell your kids are they on social media yeah I mean they you know they they are on you know Instagram and Snapchat or whatever it is and that's that's their world you know I wouldn't necessarily say to them no you can't be on it because it's a different generation it's a different era that's kind of the way they communicate but they certainly know my thoughts and I have certainly you know influenced them to understand that you know there are some important opinions out there within your family and you know your values and the way you behave but outside of that don't pay attention to it and I and I think they're you know pretty good like that I'm curious now obviously you're in the media yeah, um, and that I love that story about when you read the the newspapers. Has that changed? Do you think about that, or does that change your perspective on how you approach commentating, interviewing? Um, not necessarily. No, I, I think actually having how watched, you? yeah. So having watched so much more tennis, I've always thought I understood the game well, but now I think I understand different players better. I just sit there and go, "What are you doing? What's the game plan? What's the strategy?" And that's the intrigue in tennis. You know, there are so many different styles of players. But to me, and again, an area an area that I'm not, it doesn't float my boat, is the amount of data. I was just going to ask yeah. about that. Yeah, he but it's not, it's, no, yeah, but it's to, to me, and again, I would say, you know, tennis is an art, not a science. And, and, you know, if people want to deep dive into the data, great. You know, if you want a big team and great, that's for you. But to me... The fundamentals of the game have never changed. If you can hit the ball pretty hard and you can run pretty fast and you don't make mistakes, you'll be really, really good. Really good. You know, top 50, top 30, top 20, top 10. That's that's it. That's interesting because that's so because, many are getting into data. Oh now. my, yeah, and that's, you know, there is good data. and But, you know, to me, you know, I'd sit down with someone like Dimitrov and go, you miss way too much. It doesn't mean that you push the ball down the middle, but don't miss. His mis- mistakes are, are bad because she's, his shot selection is bad. And, and so, you know, for me, you know, when I, when I sometimes are on the court with some of the young players, I mean, the best drill always has been and always will be two against one. You get two at the baseline, one at the baseline, and the one on their own has to, to hit and move until they drop, until they can't do it anymore and don't make mistakes because you can't hit winners and that's the game and who is the best right now at doing that I was just going to ask you that Djokovic and Sviantec Sviantec yeah I mean smartest I mean they hit it hard they move well and they don't miss Mm. yes you can add in oh when the pattern of play how do you open up the backhand where you go to the forehand to open up the backhand and you know why do you serve here and why do you volley back behind whatever it may be there's there is detail around that but but again it's very easy to overcomplicate things.
The really interesting thoughts of Tim Hemman, and I imagine a number of people listening to that will heave a sigh of relief and emit a cheer for what amounts to some pretty basic wisdom. Things like don't listen to voices you don't need or respect, make your own decisions, don't be distracted by too much data. Jill, what did you take from that interview, having had a few nights to sleep on it? Well, I was really surprised when he, when he was talking about the pressure in particular and how he didn't really feel that pressure just because I remember, I mean, I remember being around here and watching him and how much there was so much attention on him all the time. And the fact that when I asked that question and he answered that way, I was so surprised. And I was just like, wow, that's pretty impressive with all the talk around him that he was able to get to that space where he just allowed himself to play freely. Because he did have amazing results here, despite the fact that so everybody was talking about him every single round. And, I mean, it's impressive Nori got to the semis as well with all of that, too. So, I mean, if you can play, because I know how difficult for me it was to play in the U.S. Open and how... That just everything was more stressful. So that already I, I was impressed with. And But to be able to get to that place where he was able to come in here every single year and do that, I mean, that, that really was surprising to me. I mean, there's the famous quote from Billie Jean King, pressure is a privilege. And Henman has said, pressure is all self-inflicted. <laughs> I mean, that's fascinating. It is fascinating. And it's, it's the thing of, by shutting out those outside voices, the whole thing of that pressure just dissipates a little bit, whereas if you buy into it, and really in this part of the world, as we saw with Andy Murray, that pressure can be so intense because that spotlight and that uh, desire for success. Now, if Tim, Tim Hedman had had a player before him five years ago who had won the title, that pressure dissipates, but because it took such a long time, particularly on the men's side, for that to, you know, for, to come to fruition then of course that pressure is going to build. And there's that inherent pressure too. I mean, there's the other meritorious thing. Like, you don't need to, to read the papers or the press or anything like that. He's just got that. He just knows that it's been such a long wait for people in this part of the world too. So for him to shut that out, that's the other th- big tick for me, that he was able to do that. Well, yeah, and I mean, I love, um, you know, even at the lower level that I play at, the thought of going out just saying, okay, control the controllables. Because you can't control the uncontrollables. You can get irritated about the wind, um, but just have to make sure that you're slightly less irritated about it than your opponent is. Uh, the voices, losing the distractions, losing clarity of thought. I mean, that, that for me is fascinating. And, and his line, tennis is an art, not a science. I, I mean, I think that's excellent advice. It's just way easier said than done. I, I think we all players try and get to that stage where the voices aren't in your head and it's being able to, yes, control and try and get yourself distracted from those voices but also be able to manage them well too because you don't, you also don't know you want to get rid of them. I mean, it takes decades for people to get rid of those little voices in their head so it's almost like managing them in certain ways and sort of letting them be fleeting moments that you're just allowing them to be like, okay, I get that, that's there, but I'm going to let that go. And so it's, it's not easy, and I think the best players are constantly trying to work on that and progress. It's not like they ever go away, but I think it's yeah, just trying to get better every time and trying to figure out what works for you. And one other thing to pick up, he said towards the end of that interview, the best in the business at the moment, Djokovic and Sviantec, we're not going to object to that, but he said because they don't miss. Now, I think his analysis about Dimitrov, wrong choices of shots, I think that's very fair. But I think it's actually underselling Djokovic and Sviantec to say that they just don't miss. They hit so many winners. Yeah, they do. And 
you know, they've built up this aura around them too, that whenever you step on a court, I mean, I would talk a bit of particularly on the men's side, obviously, about the best of five set dynamic. And because we don't play so much anymore, we play it four times a year, it takes time now for these younger players to get used to it. Whereas Djokovic and co., did have a few more, a few more opportunities. Davis, Carp, and some like way back masters who they don't do that anymore, obviously. But to to build that dynamic, but you're also playing against history as well, and that's one of the other things too. So yes, they may not miss, and they may not miss in the the, the really important moments when they are down. But they also have the reputation, and even Iga Swiatek, even though she's a younger player, still has that history behind her because she has won majors. Yeah. And you're right. It's not about just missing. It just the the one story that comes into my head that I remember is at the Australian Open one year. I went indoors to go practice, and Agassi was in there um, practicing, and he was warming up before his match. And I think he hit one ball in the court. He was annihilating every single ball, and for 45 minutes they were all going into the back fence. And then he went on the court for his match. He won like two, two, and two. But I don't know if it was getting out of his system or realizing that I, you know, I, I'm just going to hit this hard. But it's the fact that Sviantic and Djokovic in particular have consistently hit with that authority and command over and over again. So for them, it's not risky. But for other players that maybe don't hit with such pace and all of a sudden they go out and hit with that pace, okay, that's a risky shot. But for them, it's not risky at that point. Oh, see, I've got something in common then with Agassi because I've practiced the, you hit the way it in I the play. And hitting the fence seems to happen on a regular basis. Yes, um, I'm, I'm sure that will lead to some very good results in the future, Peter. Yes. Maybe one day. I'll get there one day. Well, lessons in life as well as lessons in tennis from Tim Henman. That's it for this week. The last of the daylight is disappearing from the London sky as we look out over the London skyline lit up over court number one. The public has left. It'll be back for the start of week two. Join us next weekend when Peter McCarter and Jill Krabus and I will be back alongside our fellow commentator and former player Lucy Earle. I'm Chris Bowers. Thanks for listening and enjoy the tennis. <laughs>